good evening or afternoon. Once again, we're at the time of the year where I'm not sure whether it's evening or afternoon anymore. Welcome. Very good to see you. Some new faces. Thank you for joining us. Allegra sent you. Oh, well, good for her. And, and it's so good to have you here. Wonderful. Yes. So we, uh, we have a sit beginning at 6.30, and so between now and then, uh, we usually just... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm open to questions about meditation practice, and we just talk about that sort of thing for a while. So please, any any questions that you have that anyone has? John, I have a question, even though I can't see you. I can't see you either. Oh, there you are. Yes. Okay. Um, now I can see you. Maybe you could speak just a little bit about, um, I was reading a text by uh, a Buddhist monk about Lojong practice. And um, the text said something about if you can't, if you're in so much pain or if you're so mentally afflicted that you can't meditate, you can use, uh, you can still use those kinds of heightened emotions to bring on the direct perception of emptiness. And I just wonder what you think about that, or. <clears throat> well, you, I, I would agree that you you can. Um, but that would be uh, that would require a fairly uh, advanced uh, degree of uh, uh, ability to keep your mind settled on the experience of the pain, you know, and to investigate it to allow that kind of insight to arise. Um, it is the case that pain is a sensation that is unpleasant, but it is also the case that it is the mind's reaction to the pain which is causing the vast majority of the suffering that we experience. And so to put that another way, uh, we experience or we see, we uh, uh, observe this quantity of what we call pain. And that pain is empty of uh, a self-nature of being the way it appears to be from its own side, independently of the projection of the mind. So if you can, if you can uh, recognize that and have the clarity and the insight to recognize that it is the reaction of your mind that is causing this to be the suffering that it is. And observe that, which actually, pain is a really effective way to do that because you'll have a moment where you realize that and you let go of your resistance and the pain is less, and then you can observe your mind resisting once more and, and the suffering increases, and you can see this, uh, the, the, you can see the momentary nature of whatever is appearing, you know, uh, 
and you can see the dynamic that exists in terms of the mind's reaction and the sensation that is is the initial source of this. And at some point, that that can just crystallize into a, a really clear understanding that it's not just this the, the suffering associated with the sensation of pain, but it's everything that is uh, being produced in this way. That's an insight into emptiness. Uh, the special experience that you're referring to, though, this is when your mind stops doing that. And so it takes more than just uh, insight into the fact that your mind is doing this. Although it's the, the insight into the fact of what's happening that arises out of directly seeing it happen moment by moment, that is very powerful and very transforming and it can make it much easier for you to deal with the pain. But you have to have uh, you have to have a sufficiently clear insight into the fact that the self that you believe you are that is experiencing the pain and therefore suffering through the resistance to it is just as much a projection as the suffering is. That has to be that insight has to be equally clear. As long as you don't have that insight into the emptiness of the self that's driving the whole process, the process is not very likely to be it's not very likely to stop it's not very likely to be interrupted so you have to have at least as as clear an insight into the emptiness of self as you do the emptiness of the the pain or the suffering that the mind is generating And you also have to have sufficiently powerful equanimity that you can just simply observe this. You know, basically what will happen, what would happen, what could happen in that circumstance is you're observing the the sensation that is the pain and you're observing the mind's reaction to it that is the suffering. And as the insight becomes clear, and that's combined with such an equanimity that there is no further uh, resistance. There is no, uh, in, in the moment when the pain diminishes, there's no grasping after that. And in the moment when the pain intensifies, there's no resisting that. You just are completely open to allowing it to float. And that creates the conditions by which, at some point, the mind... The, 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 the conscious process is, the whole process is repeated over and over again moment by moment by moment you know there's, there's the uh, uh, the sensation and the feeling the, the, the vedana the, the desire the uh, pleasant unpleasantness of it and that gives rise to the craving and then the craving gives rise to that reification that makes it all real. And this happens over and over and over again. So in a single moment, the mind can grasp the sensation, experience the quality of unpleasantness, 
And then at the moment that the craving is about to arise, the mind, through the combined power of the equanimity and the understanding, can turn away from that. Basically, the mind stops, the world stops, and you see things as they really are. You know, that you see that, the words you use where you have a a direct uh, perception of emptiness, is that the word that you use? What you have is a perception of things as they are, completely empty of the mind's projection. Empty because in this moment the mind has ceased to construct a world and a self and the suffering that goes along with it. It's ceased in that construction and it's in, in that moment of cessation of the construction that you can see, I mean, this, this is a manner of speaking to say that you see emptiness, because emptiness is, you know, it, it makes it sound as though emptiness is a thing, and it's like, oh, look at the emptiness over there, you know. But it, it, it's not. It's the absence of the construction of the mind, because that, that's what everything is empty of anyway. So you can experience that as a result of pain. Suffering is very well known uh, as a vehicle to awakening. Both physical and mental suffering can be. You know, uh, and so it definitely, it definitely can and does happen. Um, The, the essential ingredients are to cultivate are the equanimity, which is equanimity. You, do you know what I mean by that? That's it's it, some people uh, think equanimity means experiencing something as neither painful or, or pleasant, but it's not. It's just accepting accepting it without without any resistance and without any grasping. You're just completely accepting of what it is. The mind does not uh, react to it. So if you cultivate equanimity and combine that with mindful observation, which allows you to penetrate into the nature of what the mind's doing, that's, that's creating us. This is, this is really no different than any other practice that leads to, to awakening uh, requires the same thing to happen. But pain can be the vehicle for that. Is that what you were thinking of or getting at and asking a question? I know you have a lot of pain. And I know I've talked to you about meditating on the pain. And there's many different degrees of understanding that will unfold as you continue to meditate on the pain. The nature of pain, the nature of sensation, the momentariness of that which is actually rising and passing away that you you know you perceive as as body and circumstances that are painful and then there is the mind's reaction to it and uh, are you familiar with the links of dependent origination yeah that's what I was just describing to you so that's what you want to that's what you want to have the direct experience of. You want to be able to see exactly what your mind is doing. And here we have sort of the same principle that works in all 
all of the different practices that we do. When we practice mindful awareness of observing, uh, for example, uh, when we become impatient or angry, uh, the mindful awareness that, uh, that uh, is applied to that, that observation, uh, allows an understanding to penetrate uh, deeply within our mind. It creates a new kind of imprint amongst the uh, mental formations that that alters them. You know, it's a completely new kind of karmic seed arises as a result of uh, the mindful observation of what's really taking place when we're engaged in, in anger or desire or any any of these other sorts of uh, deluded mental states that are creating our problems. Right? So this is uh, this is the the same thing: uh, observing the process of what's actually taking place paying enough attention to it that you actually can see it happen uh, in terms of, in something that's so intense as the suffering that's generated in response to a painful sensation, if you can observe that clearly enough so that the understanding of what's really going on penetrates deeply into the mind, into the mental formations that we call the mind, then what's at some point what's going to happen is that's going to all come together and the mind's going to say, let's not do this anymore. <laughs> and so, just for a, a, a brief period of time, and that's that will be enough to start with, that brief period of time, when everything stops, and because it has stopped, you, you see the true nature of what's there, what we describe as emptiness or nirvana, which means a cessation of craving. But uh, it actually refers to what's experienced once the... uh, Because you're breaking the link. You're breaking the link in dependent origination between the arising of the feeling and the craving, which tends to immediately follow after it. When you sever that link, then all the things that would have happened in in the subsequent moments uh, stop. And, and you're just right there with, uh, with the reality that's always been behind it all. So it's, it's, very, it's very worthwhile practicing with that in mind. Practicing to, uh, to see more and more clearly the process of dependent origination as it creates the... Uh, the circumstances that the self finds it in, self in. Last time you said something that took me by surprise. Mm -hmm. And I think you said that uh, samsara and nirvana are the same thing? Did I, did uh, I correct you? That's one way of speaking of them, is that they are the same thing. Um, <clears throat> it is not the case that samsara is one thing and nirvana is something else. 
there is uh, we can use the, the word that the Buddha did suchness mm-hmm. okay suchness experienced in one way is samsara suchness experienced in another way is nirvana now these words that we use uh, if we go to the where they come from. Samsara actually is literally referring to the cycle of rebirth and redeath, birth and death, birth and death, birth and death. And so, uh, and and when we analyze that from the point of view of, of where that came from, you know, the the uh, early Indian uh, philosophers and ascetics and so forth who examined that and said, well, this this is not a good thing. We need liberation from this. But you see, you look at it a little more closely, and it's not just that when you die, you're going to be reborn and have to die again, and have to die again. This happens every morning you wake up, and you experience the suffering that makes up a day's living. Each moment this occurs, that it is, you know, and, and this is how the Buddha expressed it, you know, as the the first of the noble truths is that is that all life is permeated by this dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness, this, this this imperfectness, which in its more extreme forms, which are not that uncommon, is just plain suffering. So that's the samsara part of it. Now, the Buddha also, uh, as the second noble truth, pointed out that. When you examine carefully, you discover that the reason, the cause uh, for this dukkha, the reason that this dukkha permeates human existence, is because of craving, constant arising of craving. And the third truth is that with the cessation of craving, there is the cessation of dukkha. And nirvana is the word that refers to that. So basically the first truth is describing samsara. And the third truth is describing nirvana. The fourth truth is the path that connects the two. But you see, what has changed when someone has gone from samsara to nirvana? Something has it's been an internal transformation in the mind of the individual. So they haven't gone from here to there. few minutes more. Yes. Oh, well, I'm visiting. I'm on vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, a man showed up at my door today looking for this place. And you what? A man showed up at my, my friend's door today looking for this place. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I practiced meditation. I was like, you know, wow, okay, well, I'll go check it out too. You know? uh-huh. But anyway, so I was just wondering what, what this is about and mm-hmm. you know, what Vipassana, is that the, the main kind of style that you do here? Um, <clears throat> sure, let me explain that. Uh, actually, we haven't really talked that much about meditation in this period. We're talking more about Buddhist Dharma. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the particular meditation technique that I teach 
it is a it, it is a vipassana, but most most Americans, uh, when they use the word vipassana, are referring to some variant of the method developed by Mahasi Sayadaw a little over a hundred years ago, which involves uh, observing the rise and fall of the abdomen and noting whatever happens to appear, which is is one form of vipassana. Vipassana, the word itself means insight, and that method is called vipassana simply because it is one of the practices that if you do it will yield insight. But in exactly the same way that I was describing uh, a, a few minutes ago, meditation on pain, it will lead to insight as well, so that also makes it a vipassana practice. And what I teach is samatha vipassana, which is a combination of developing powerful concentration and mindful awareness, and at the same time uh, acquiring insights. And so it is. Uh, it doesn't involve uh, noting, although there's different points in the practice where certain kinds of noting can be useful. But it involves primarily training the mind to uh, and stability of attention, uh, and at the same time very powerful mindful awareness. So we meditate on the sensations that are produced as the uh, uh, breath occurs, as the air moves in and out of the nose, uh, preferably on the sensations that occur in that vicinity where the air enters and leaves. Uh, so we use those sensations as a meditation object, and our practice is, try, is to try to uh, train ourselves, first of all, to remain continuously aware of those sensations, overcome the tendency to forget what we're doing, and have our mind wander from one thing to another before we realize and bring it back. So so the first thing we try to do is just achieve continuity of attention. Then, secondly, uh, as we become more and more successful now, we realize that while we're attending to the breath, we're also aware of many other things at the same time. And sometimes the sensations of the breath are the primary focus of the attention, but sometimes they slip into the periphery and something else takes its place. So this is sort of the next step beyond getting over forgetting and mind-wandering, is getting over having uh, those other thoughts and sensations that are distractions from the meditation object. Uh, Displace the meditation object, even though you don't lose awareness of the meditation object. So when you get some skill in keeping that in the center of your attention, and the other part of it is overcoming dullness. Uh, the, the gross dullness is the sleepiness that inevitably, as soon as you start to develop a certain degree of concentration and stillness of mind, you will go through a period where there's sleepiness. More, uh, and that's, uh, that's pretty obviously something that's undesirable, but uh, something that's a little more difficult for people to recognize and appreciate the importance of is overcoming subtle dullness. Because once you get over the tendency to drift off into sleep as a result of focusing your attention, there is the loss of the, of the clarity and the intensity of the awareness. And very central, very crucial to this practice is maintaining a very high level of, uh, of conscious awareness of whatever it is that you placed your attention on. And over time, this becomes more and more powerfully developed. So it becomes a much uh, a much higher degree of mindful awareness 
than we ordinarily experience in daily life, and certainly than you do when you begin to practice. So this is where it, as as uh, as a practice properly done, it differentiates from what happens in some practices, which are concerned solely with developing the power of concentration. Because what happens with them is when this subtle dullness develops and the meditation object loses its clarity, this subtle dullness of the mind makes it very easy to stay one-pointedly on that meditation object. And so the person has a very pleasant, very relaxing meditation, but it's a dead end. It doesn't go anywhere. The only way that, that insight and understanding can develop is that if your ability to uh, to focus your attention with stability on whatever you choose is combined with the ability to investigate what you're observing with a, uh, a very, very high level of uh, clarity. And that's what brings about the understanding. And so that's, in essence, the, the practice. Once a person's concentration reaches the point that it is uh, relatively effortless, then they enjoy uh, wonderful things like what's called physical pliancy, which means that you can sit for very long periods of time, hours at a time, without your body becoming uncomfortable, and that your uh, body is pervaded with a, uh, a pleasant sensation, and the mind is pervaded with a sense of uh, joy. Uh, and as one becomes familiar with that joy, it becomes less of a distraction and, and there develops a very deep tranquility and equanimity. So the goal of this practice is to come, and that's what Samatha refers to. The goal of this practice is to come to this place where uh, you've cultivated Samatha. Wherever, wherever you direct your attention, that's where it stays until you choose to move it. And your mind is completely open, alert, clear and, and you vividly perceive whatever you're looking at so that you have this power of uh, this tremendous power of the mind for investigation of reality this is combined with uh, a mind that is in a state of joy tranquility and equanimity so that you see you have you have exactly the things you need when I was talking earlier about what's the conditions that are necessary to have experience of awakening, to have the mind stop and the world stop so that you can see things as they really are and awakening. So necessary conditions for that, in addition to concentration and, and a very powerful mindful awareness, uh, are uh, a, a joyful mind, a tranquil mind, and a mind that has equanimity to accept whatever it observes. Those are five of the seven factors of enlightenment, as they're called. The other two are investigation and energy. When you have those five, then you start seriously investigating what on earth is this thing that's happening that I call my life. And as you investigate it with energy, then you have all seven factors of enlightenment present. And this is what allows the experience of awakening to occur. These are the necessary conditions. So this practice is about uh, developing those five. When you have those five, that's samatha. And uh, vipassana is insight. All the way along the line of developing samatha, 
you'll be gaining insight into the nature of the mind and insights of various kinds into uh, the nature of the human experience. So the, a lot by the time you, you get to, to the last stage, you've already done a lot of the work. You're, you're very, fairly close. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah. That's probably the shortest summary I've ever given in this practice. <laughs> but you know, I think it's probably the more often you hear it, the better that you understand it. You know, so uh, I think it's a benefit in my describing it at every opportunity that arises. I'm not sure if somebody's. You know, I don't know how familiar you are with these ideas, but and somebody who's not very familiar with these ideas first encounters them. They get like concentrated dose like that. I don't know how how easy it is to assimilate, but. <laughs> but I was just speaking as much for everyone else's benefit as yours, so I hope it helped you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> let's uh, let's begin our sitting practice. is going on, but you know, if we look at the sequence of development of skills, uh, which is what I was reviewing there, uh, the first skill that uh, you, you need to accomplish, and it should take priority, I mean you'll develop other skills together with it, but it should take priority over anything else, and that is getting over forgetting and mind wandering. The forgetting and the mind wandering. Your microphone went off. Oh. 
is uh, okay. So, I mean, that's the experience that everybody has when they start to meditate. They forget the meditation object, their mind wanders for a while, and then it's like, oh, wait, yeah, wait a minute, Where, <laughs> what am I doing here? Oh, yes. And that happens over and over again. And and until a person can uh, sit down and for the entire period of their sit uh, not cease to be aware of the meditation object, that that should be their primary uh, objective. But they're going to experience... Uh, more and more often, longer and longer periods where uh, the meditation object is in their awareness. And what is going to be obvious is that it's never the only thing. Your mind's filled with all kinds of other things that you're aware of simultaneously. And some people haven't understood that and they feel, you know, and they feel like there's something wrong if, if their mind isn't empty of everything but the meditation object. Eventually, you will come to that place, but that, but you're not, you, you're not there right away. It takes a while to get there. And if you start trying to make that happen before you're ready to and before you've, you've accomplished the other things, then what you'll actually do is, is greatly slow down the progress of development of the skill. So that first skill is getting over the forgetting and the mind-wandering. But then, every single instance when your mind has not wandered, you're still with the meditation object, there's two possibilities. One is that the center of your focus of attention is the meditation object, and the other things you're aware of are kind of in the periphery. Or, you're still aware of the meditation object, which is kind of off by the side over here, and you really thinking about something else, or your mind keeps dwelling on the pain in your knee or something else like that. So the appropriate practice when that's the case is that you want to, when you, as soon as you recognize that the meditation object has moved away from being the central focus, and uh, that, or, or even that the central focus is being shared by something else, you want to re, refocus your attention on the meditation object. And that's a skill, too. At first, it just keeps slipping off, and it just keeps slipping off, and it just keeps slipping off. But after a while, the skill develops in keeping that as, as the central focus of your attention. Okay, So that's what I was referring to there, is these, these sort of two levels of skill development. But there are all these other things present in your mind. So you have, you have made significant progress in, in your ability to concentrate when even though you're aware of other sounds and even though that little voice in your head just doesn't quite shut up and thoughts pop into your mind of this and that, when you are able to keep them from taking your attention away from the meditation object. But this is also a great stage for learning all kinds of things, for uh, developing right view, as a matter of fact, of what the nature of our existence is. It is a series of conscious experiences in each of which there is some particular thing that is arising as, as a focus of attention. 
and it's also an opportunity to uh, to come to understand clearly uh, the meaning of uh, the Buddha's teaching that what the individual consists of are uh, these five constituent elements of sensation, feelings, perceptions, uh, mental formations, and consciousness. Because, you know, in, in, in the whole course of training the mind to stay with one thing, you have over and over again the opportunity to recognize the truth of, of that. But these are the things that are present, and they just recur over and over again. And they rise and they pass away, and one replaces the other, and so on and so forth. But as you continue along, there comes a point where, okay, you have a situation where you're continuously aware of the meditation object, and it's always the primary uh, object of your awareness. But there is this ongoing awareness of other thoughts and, uh, and bodily sensations and sounds and so forth that is sharing your awareness. So you're not really single-pointed, right? And as a matter of fact, uh, the sort of scope of your awareness expands and contracts, and sometimes you're aware of more of this other stuff. Even though you're the, the, even though the focal point is still a meditation object, it's your awareness of it is more diffuse because you're taking in a lot of other stuff at the same time. And it's really clear the difference when you really come in and you focus very sharply. And the vividness of your awareness is just right there. So with continued practice, the next major skill level that, that uh, you develop in terms of concentration and awareness is um, it is a, a, a single-pointedness with a, uh, a particular quality of exclusive focus. And what we mean there is that all of those other things just get farther and farther away until you're hardly aware of them at all. So when that happens, you're sitting, and if you're using the sensations of the breath as a meditation object, uh, by that time, not only will your mind be quiet, but so will your body. So your breathing will be very, very shallow and very subtle, but your mind will be focused and you'll be aware of every, every part of the sensations of the breath your mind not moving. And there'll be certain sounds that you are aware of, but not the, not the constant awareness of all kinds of sound. It's just every now and then there'll be a sound that is uh, particularly loud or particularly unusual, and you'll be aware of it, but your mind won't go to it. It'll just it'll arise and it'll disappear, but it won't really disturb your focus. Thoughts will come, but a thought will come and it'll be like this little whisper that you just ignore and it goes away. And so that's what we call single-pointed focus, exclusive, uh, single-pointedness or exclusive focus. When you have that, then you, uh, you have, you're, you're very skilled at concentration. And the next stage is to become an adept. What that means is in order to sustain this, the, the situation I've just described, you have to be constantly vigilant because anyone who's a little whispering thoughts could, if you don't notice that it's there and 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 make sure that there isn't any drifting in your focus takes place, you know, or when there's a sound and that might trigger a, a thought process, or it might cause you, you know, if a phone rings, for example, 
You notice how there's the mind waiting for the next minute. You know? So you have to you have to be constantly vigilant and and, and ready to, to make a correction if the mind starts to 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 drift. Uh, oh, there's another aspect of this I didn't discuss at all, which is dullness, but or, or dullness starts to develop. And that constant vigilance actually produces a subtle agitation in the mind. But at some point, it's no longer necessary. At some point in the training, this this sustaining of attention becomes effortless. And it's very wonderful when that happens. Now you don't need this to be constantly online. The mind enters into a new depth of calmness. And we could say that you're not just skilled in meditation, you're now an adept. Your mind places it where it just stays there. And associated with this is the the physical pliancy. This is called mental pliancy, by the way. That's that's a, the technical term to describe this is mental pliancy. It means your mind does whatever you intend it to do. <laughs> it is compliant. Uh, it is uh, in addition to that, it's also malleable and wieldy. You know, something's malleable, you can shape it and direct it. It's wieldy, you can move it about. When your mind is like this, you can do both of those two things too. You can, you can engage in. You don't no longer have to practice single pointed concentration. You you can now uh, you can now observe the arising and passing away of one thing after another. And every single thing, even though your mind's moving from one thing to another. It still retains that same quality of complete focus. You know, even though I'm only on this for a moment, I'm totally on it, and then it goes to the next, and it retains that that, that power of mindful awareness and that quality of, uh, of focus. That's the that's the quality that we describe as being wieldy. You can direct your attention here and explore that. You can direct your attention there and investigate that, and the moving. This moving about does not disrupt the quality of your concentration or your mindful awareness. That's that's the wieldiness. Malleableness is that you can reshape the way that you're observing. You can, for example, your mind is trained to observe the sensations of your breath. You can bring your bring your conscious awareness a step back so that you're observing the mind, observing the breath. Or you can drop the breath entirely and just open the mind up and make it space-like and just be aware of anything that arises and passes away without clinging to any of it, without following any of it. This is a quality of a mind that's the, that is uh, malleable. So it's mental pliancy with a mind that's malleable and wieldy. It's a wonderful thing. Even better yet, as if that didn't make it nice enough. And, and <laughs> You've overcome 99% of all of the frustrations and difficulties associated with any kind of meditation practice, but it's accompanied by physical pleasure and a feeling of joy, uh, which matures into tranquility and equanimity. So those are, these these are the stages through which uh, your practice can develop through. And. Uh, my experience and uh, my working hypothesis in terms of my teaching, and by the way, I can't claim that it goes back thousands of years I didn't invent it, but is that 
where you get off track is if you try to be single-pointed and have exclusive focus before you've developed the continuity of awareness. You get in your own way, you create expectations and frustrations and disappointments, and you don't and you're not able to proceed. If you go about it in a stepwise and systematic way, then uh, the, the initial steps are, are the most challenging and take the most time. But once you get past them, then it just begins to really accelerate on its own and the practice takes off. So, let's give Anything else that you'd like to... I just find that sometimes in meditation those later steps that you're describing happen, like this really deep quietness, and it feels good, and it physically does feel good, it's really this really cool state that you can't create, but you can find (laughs) but then other times it'll just be like totally back to stage one, That's right. totally yap mind (laughs) yeah, and that uh, that's, I'm so glad you mentioned it, it's a very important point Number one is that that you're going to move back and forth in this. You know, things happen in your life. You're really agitated. You're going to be at stage one. You know, whereas maybe last week you were you were way in, into these deep, wonderful states. The other thing too, though, that I really want to point out is that it is it's developing the skills and the consistency. So even though you may experience profound state of calm and joy, uh, if that if you can't create the conditions for that consistently, don't chase after that. You're not ready to. That's the mistake. You know, keep creating the it that is the result of a specific set of conditions being present. And they can occur and will occur from time to time spontaneously. You know, even somebody who's never meditated before, you know, they'll they'll sit down and meditate for an hour and have a wonderful experience and then, you know, weeks afterwards they can't reproduce it. And to the degree that you cling to that, I mean something like that is wonderful because it gives you a taste, you know, it's like, you know, you're no longer taking it completely on faith, right? Because you, you had an experience yourself. But beyond that, the problem is that you keep grasping at it. You want that, you know. But you, you've got to let go of that. And what you've got to do is put your effort into, you know, like if your problem is, is, is forgetting, then what you want to work on is remembering. And you don't want to be saving your, your happiness and satisfaction for when you experience a profound state of calm. You want to have that satisfaction and happiness every time you remember to go back to the meditation object. You know, that's it. You want to have it, you want to be really pleased with yourself just because you discovered your mind was wandering and it hadn't even been a whole 15 minutes yet. (laughs) Because that's the kind of positive reinforcement that is going to, to bring you to the next stage. So we have to be very careful when we have the positive experiences, when, when we experience some of these more advanced, uh, 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 when we have a meditation session that uh, partakes of these more advanced stages than where we're really at, is to not get caught up in thinking, well, that's what I should always have. Because mm-hmm. you know? you're working towards the point where that is what you always have. 
So that's that's really important thing to to always keep in mind. Yeah. Don't don't get attached. Wherever you are, mm-hmm. you know you've been having for weeks. You've been having these wonderful meditations, lots of lots of joy and uh, that profound stillness, and then. Today you've got monkey mind. Well, that's what you do. You just forget all about the last few weeks and you practice where you are today. Yeah, yeah like all you can do is come back. You can't do anything else. That's right. At least that's what it seems like. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. And sometimes it's hard to accept that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah um, normally with my meditation practice, I concentrate on the breath and the belly. But since the Richard Shankman weekend, I've experimented a few times, including mm-hmm. tonight, with uh, concentrating on the breath at the nose. And it's an extremely different experience. Yes. And, and and so this question came up, well, how do I know which to do? Um, with the breath in the belly, I find that my concentration is worse. Um, and a lot of negative mind states tend to come up um, but it seems to me useful that they come up, I notice them, and, and I begin to release them. Not mm-hmm. fully yet, but mm-hmm. releasing is happening, happening. So even though this is an unpleasant experience, it feels very useful. Mm-hmm. With the nose, it's, it's a completely different. I'm not having very many negative mind states at all. My concentration is not perfect, but it's quite a bit better, mm-hmm. and I'm calm and peaceful. And I notice a thought come up, this, this evening of almost like I'm wasting time. I'm just enjoying myself. <laughs> and so naturally it's like, wait a second, uh, catch that thought, don't go too far with that thought, because I don't know. It does feel like I'm wasting time, I'm just enjoying myself, but I don't trust that to be the truth, that I'm wasting time, and that I'm just enjoying myself, but I, I see that I don't know what's true about this. Well, what you, uh, I, I can, with a lot of confidence, say that if you, if you continue uh, to experiment in this way with using the breath at the nose, it, it won't always be that way. And as a matter of fact, people who've never done meditation with anything except the breath at the nose, they have negative mental states and memories and past traumas and things like that come to mind uh, too. It's, uh, um, it's just what happens, the, the way the difference happens to be manifesting right now in you. Uh, you know, there are certain things, certain differences between the breath and the rise and fall of the abdomen um, that probably contribute to this, but they're, they're worth being aware of. The breath at the nose is it's subtler. Uh, the variety of distinct sensations that you can become aware of is much greater. Um, so it does it it is conducive to uh, a much more powerful state of concentration more readily. Uh, and so probably what's happening is you, your mind has been, you've been training your mind to concentrate for quite a while on the fairly coarse sensation of the rise and fall. And now you've given this mind that's been working towards concentration for a long time a subtler object that is easier for it to. And so it 
goes for it, and it's it's having it's having a wonderful time. You're, you know, uh, you say you're enjoying. Well, your mind is is enjoying the experience and the benefits of uh, of of concentrated focus and calmness. But to the degree that there are agitating psychological factors at the subconscious level below the surface that still need to be resolved after after the honeymoon period with the new object is over it does have to come up again too. <laughs> you know. um, the advantages of, of the, the uh, breath of the nose are largely to do with this is tactile much more sensitive area and the movement of air that's producing the sensation uh, is also much subtler. And when the breath becomes very quiet, it requires a very highly developed mindful awareness to even be able to detect the breath. But if you have succeeded in developing powerful mindful awareness, then uh, you have this paradoxical situation where your breath is so fine that you're hardly breathing at all, but the sensations are so intense you can barely stand them. Anybody, any of you have that experience? You're breathing really slow. It's like, it's like two breaths a minute or something. Very, very slow, but sometimes very, very fine and very shallow. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, you, even though it's so fine and shallow, you know, it's become so sensitive that you, know, you might have this question, how can I stand to breathe all the time? It's so <laughs> but it's just it's just the difference. In, so th- this is the other quality of the mind at the real. It's also a much smaller area, and uh, so so those are, it has certain qualities that make it quite useful for developing concentration and single pointedness. But you can do all the same thing with the rise and fall of the abdomen as well. I think most of the difference that, that you're experiencing between these two as meditation objects, you're experiencing the real difference, but it's, be, it's a reflection of the fact that your mind has been trying to remain focused on a coarse object, and now all of a sudden it has a very refined one. So, so uh, I would, my recommendation to you would be to continue to experiment, uh, I, I would say let go of all those worries about whether you're wasting your time or you know just just because you're finding it uh, in, enjoyable. Uh, there's nothing wrong with enjoying it. Um, and, and enjoy it while it lasts, but uh, it's you. Uh, in terms of the long-term objective of training your mind in both power of awareness and stability of attention, just continue to work with this and see where it takes you. And at any point that it seems appropriate, you know, go back to uh, go back to the the abdomen if, if you'd like to. And and most definitely, if you're going to do a, a retreat like the one I believe you're planning to do in June, follow the instructions for that particular method. You know, but um, in a way, it's like it's like having a convertible sports car and a big SUV. And which one am I going to drive? You know, well, it depends on sort of depends on 
and lose your end of what you're trying to accomplish in the moment. But they'll both, they'll both get you there. Other questions? One thing that I can suggest to those of you who are still uh, dealing with the problem of uh, forgetting uh, is you might try during the rest of your day when you're out meditating those circumstances that are conducive to be aware of the in and out breath even while you're doing something else or other things are going on around you. Just try as often as as often as you can throughout the day to just be aware of the sensations of the breath. Same thing when you're going when you're in bed going to sleep at night and when you're waking up in the morning. Just as often as possible, just keep bring, bringing the attention back to being aware of that sensation and make it a habit. Uh, of course, it's hard to be aware of the sensations of your breath while you're talking to somebody. And um, you know, if you're driving your car, you can be aware of the sensation of the breath, but that's definitely going to be in the background, right? And it's not going to be in the foreground of your awareness. So, but just, you can, you can practice cultivating continuity of awareness under all kinds of circumstances. And, and do that. For those of you who maybe don't have a problem with continuity anymore, or not very often, but there's that still, the mind sort of slipping off and you know, you'll discover that even though you've been aware of the breath, you're really thinking of something else, too. <laughs> um, you might also extend your practice uh, outside of the sitting sessions specifically to that. Now, definitely not when you're doing something like driving a car, but there are a lot of times, if, if you're waiting uh, in, in uh, line at a grocery store or waiting for your lunch to be served in a restaurant, or waiting for the photocopier, or uh, I mean, that's just what immediately comes to mind. But there are many opportunities during the day when you could have the sensation of the breath be the focal point of your awareness and still be aware of other things around you enough to respond appropriately when, you know, the cashier is ready to take you, for example. Um, or even if you're driving, when you stop at a traffic light, you can be primarily aware of the sensations of the breath while you're waiting for the light to change. You won't miss the light, or if you do, the car behind you will let you know. <laughs> so, uh, I, I think it, it is it is a process of training. It's just repetition of the same thing over and over again until it becomes natural and automatic. So the more often you do it, you know, the more opportunities that you see to come up to to do it, 
then the more quickly you will master that particular aspect of, of the skill of, of the training. Let's Pam ask a question first. Oh, okay. Um, the in-breath has um, a distinctly different character um, for me than the, than the out-breath. And, and, and the accompanying mental state has a very different quality to it as well. So that's been very interesting and helpful to notice. Um, at first, when I months ago, you know, when I, I was trying this, doing this, um, the in breath had a, a kind of sharpness to it, a clarity to it, a, a real physicality to it. Um, but the out breath was at first difficult to even detect the sensations of it. But then I started to notice, like even the heartbeat, in in right here, and. But it, it's a, a very different kind of quality. It's it's subtle. It's there, but it isn't there. But it, it's very much there. But it, it has a, it has a different and and if if um, and forgetting or dullness seems to be able to grab me on the out breath. The in breath you can be very present and crystal clear, and in in a matter as quickly as an out breath. You can begin. I begin to to fade. I mean, I still deal with this. Mm -hmm. Some days it's it's not a problem at all. Right. Other days, <coughs> um, is there anything you can say about this? <laughs> well, first of all, I want to say that this is uh, this this kind of awareness and investigation, and I describe it as engaging with the sensations of the breath instead of just sort of passively. Uh, oh, there he is again. There it is again. There it is. But, you know, noticing things about it, noticing how it changes, noticing the relationship between uh, the, the, the mental states, the uh, changes are so subtle that they, that, uh, they change from in-breath to out-breath. That, that's very good. That's, that's excellent. That's exactly what you want to be doing. Um, now, still something will capture you and carry you away. And I'll give you some tools to do the same kind of thing you're already doing, Graph, that will help with that. Okay? Now when you if you forget the meditation object and your mind has wandered for any length of time, it's probably gone, this is what the word wandering refers to, is it was first this, which triggered that, which then triggered something else, and that triggered something else. And so, you know, uh, it would be silly to try to trace it back to what originally made you forget the meditation object, because too many things have happened in between. <laughs> but when it's just a brief lapse, very often whatever it is that's in your awareness that, that, that you were thinking about, that's the very same thing that took you away from the meditation object. And so you can adopt an attitude of just noticing what it is, not analyzing it, but you know the, the analogy that I use is uh, it's you got abducted by it. So look your abductor in the face. Maybe you'll recognize it next time, you know, before it comes. You can carry this to another step usefully. Although, don't don't create too busy, much busyness in your mind. 
But if you become very familiar with uh, the, uh, the hindrances, you can label the distraction that carried you away according to whether it was to do with sense desire or ill will or uh, procrastination or uh, worry or doubt. Most of them, actually most of them will have a label of being uh, um, sense desire, uh, occasionally ill will if you've had some disagreeable thing that's happened to you recently and it's in your mind. But, uh, and the, the sense desire will have to do with those things that seem really important to us. And so when, you, when I, I say you notice, notice the thought that carried you away, and after a few noticings, it's obvious that, well, it's the same one or two or three thoughts over and over again that keep carrying you away. And so then when you're back and you're with the breath, then you can start watching for th- those, those thoughts arising and being more on guard against them specifically. And another thing along this line, and once again, don't let it lead to making your mind busy. But if you have the sort of clarity and engagement and you can do this in a natural flowing way, uh, the thoughts that carry you away from the meditation object, and this is not just the ones that cause you to forget the meditation object, this is also the ones that just displace the meditation object, push it off to the side while you're aware of them. They kind of fall into three different categories. There's, There's the ones that ambush you. They're the ones that just bam, all of a sudden they're there. Where did that come from? You know, you didn't even see it coming. Not too much you can do about those. There's the sneaky ones. You know they're there. And they just kind of gradually get closer and closer. Until next thing you know, here's a sensation in my breath and here's this other and they're there, just right there together. <laughs> and a moment longer and the breath would be over there. And it's just like, right? That's what I mean by they, they kind of... Uh, uh, sneak up on you. The third kind, they're seductive. They're oh so attractive, and you feel your mind being drawn to them. It's oh, okay. And you keep you keep having to come back, but but you'll feel that this is something that your mind would really like to engage in this particular thought process or this particular worry or whatever. If you're not in your head, so it, it's they kind of tend to fall into these three different categories. So practicing mindful awareness while developing concentration is noticing these kinds of things. And it helps to helps to speed the process along. May I ask another quick question? Because I'm having a problem with this. <laughs> um, you know, this that we would call the third day, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, but it, it continues. It is so seductive to me. Mm-hmm. Because when I close my eyes and I focus my attention here, it is so strong and so clear. It's like the room, the world, everything comes into focus, and it is so clear, and it and it's so, and I can just feel my whole body just totally let go, even the muscles of my face let go. I mean, the tension drains, and everything is clear. And I want to stay there. It's so seductive. Have you tried staying there? Yeah, a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, is that a meditation technique? Is that a valid thing? I mean, I'm wondering if one you can thing use absolutely anything in the world as a meditation object. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's it's completely valid. Try it and see. You see what you remember. What you want to do is not just enjoy a really good meditation, mm-hmm. but you want to bring your mind to a place where uh, you have a very high level of awareness. So make sure you have that. Make sure there's not dullness arising as part of this. And now examine this in terms of why why is it that it's so easy to stay with this compared to something else? Because where you'd like to get to be is no matter what you choose to direct your mind towards, that's where your mind goes and it stays. And so, what you've got is something here that's very easy to focus on. And so, investigate that in terms of, well, how can you use this positively to train your mind? And what can you learn from it? It's all, always what you can, what you can learn from it. Um, in the definition of, uh, you know, the word for samadhi, for concentration is samadhi, and uh, it means a bringing together of the mind, if we look at the Sanskrit roots. Uh, and a distinction is made between uh, ordinary concentration and sama samadhi, right samadhi. And ordinary concentration is if something is interesting enough or pleasurable enough or dangerous enough, it's easy to concentrate on. So it's just the natural behavior of the mind in response to to something that has those qualities, which are actually triggering a powerful reaction in terms of desire. Whereas the uh, sama samadhi that we're trying to cultivate is one that is not dependent upon the qualities of the object. Okay. All right. So now you, you might you might tend to think, well, okay, so because this is so attractive and because I enjoy it so much, and so it's obviously uh, an object of, of desire and I have desire and craving for the the meditation I enjoy when I take it, that maybe I should leave it alone. But what I would say is no, just don't explore it, investigate it, learn from it. You know, go to it with the attitude of, oh, this is how this is how samadhi occurs in the presence of uh, of, of pleasure, and desire, and satisfaction. And investigate it. It's only it's only a problem if the desire wins and You'd rather sit here uh, enjoying the pleasant experience of this meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, it's, it's for me working with it. It's 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 been a wonderful learning tool because because there's such clarity, and then I can see it shift. Mm-hmm. It shifts in a, in a blink of an eye, but I can see the shift. When it shifts, I can I can detect it. Mm-hmm. it 
very closely in an instant. I can see it and then bring it back. Mm -hmm. And I could not put into words exactly what that shift is or what it, how it seems less clear, but it, it's very, very subtle but very, very real. And I can detect it easier here mm -hmm. than at my nose. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it, so, I don't know, it's an interesting, it's yeah. been a very interesting exploration, but I don't also want to do anything that is, uh, or don't want to spend a lot of time doing something that isn't particularly productive. But exactly. I think, I think it, it may be, at least for now, uh, productive to, yeah. to explore this. Yeah, I, I think it is. And, and going back and forth and saying, okay, this is experience I have with this. Let me go back to those and see if I can replicate that or see if I can see what the difference is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Okay, yes, thank you. So, that's, mm -hmm. But you're, you're, doing, you're doing very well. You're doing the right things. You have the right attitude of, of investigation and exploration. Mm -hmm. Yes? Yeah, I wanted to ask you uh, to say more about seductive thoughts, because mm -hmm. I have a, a, a real, that happens to me a lot where my mind goes off into fantasy, and over the years I've been able to catch it more and more often, but what seems to be happening most recent, more recently is I'll catch myself about to go off into fantasy, and I'll stop myself, and then it's almost as if the fantasy or something says, no, and I go off into fantasy anyway. I stop myself and still can't stop myself. Mm -hmm. And, and it gets very frustrating sometimes. And yet I'm sort of discovering a whole sense myself of, but, but who said I wanted to meditate? Like there's, there's this mm -hmm, voice that, mm -hmm. I don't, <laughs> I never said I wanted this. She said she wanted this. You know, like, like I'm arguing with myself about yes, this. So is this just something to, to explore and, and work with as best I can? Oh yeah, and to learn from, and to learn from. I mean, you, you, you've already expressed wonderfully an important lesson and an insight is that uh, you know, th there is no one single person, there's no one single mind. <laughs> there's, there's this whole illusion of me, there's a whole lot of mental processes. And they have their own agendas. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, it's very interesting whenever we find ourselves with with two of these mental processes with different agendas, and they, you know, they're there right in front of us, struggling with each other because it, it it allows us to become aware. And of course, they're not the only ones too. There's, the, there's all these others, but yeah, that's that's good. Let that let that take you uh, as far as it will. <clears throat> um, there is no single entity that you can put the label I on. You can conveniently refer to the whole mess as I. <laughs> and, and you can work with it, you know, piece by piece and in its totality. But the more clearly that you can recognize that, that there is there's no one part of this that that uh, deserves this label of, of the self or, or the, the one who wills or the one that's in control. Or yeah. I was thinking about um, the question about trusting your mind, you know, because a lot of times I'll get the feeling like, oh yeah, it's very trusting, like, like the direction to go with a certain mental state or to 
decided to do a certain thing or something. It seems really trustworthy. But then there's other times I'm getting caught in, like, realizing, like, whoa, that was really unskillful. <laughs> you know, something that happens, that having panic or something, or, or getting really angry when it wasn't helpful, or, you know, just things like that. And so, and that sounds like contradiction. But at the same time, it does feel like it's possible to know, you know, like it is trustworthy. And I don't know, I was just curious what your thoughts were about that. Well, your mind is never completely trustworthy. <laughs> because you know, your, your mind, or these different parts of your mind, are generating the perceptions out of, out of which you're constructing your reality and your sense of self. And they're doing that on the basis of all kinds of unconscious processes that, mm-hmm. you know, are, are, so you can never completely trust it. But uh, that's where that's where a value system comes in so, mm-hmm. so handy, uh, you know. Even something so simple as being able to discriminate the, the presence of desire and aversion Mm-hmm. Uh, can can help you know when w- when what your mind is presenting with you might be more trustworthy or less trustworthy than others. But there's also we you know to continue on this theme of that there's uh, uh, I am really a committee, and when there's really strong consensus, you know that's u- usually what you're going to end up going with anyway. And that's usually what we mean when we say we trust our mind, is that there's, uh, of, of the different aspects of what makes us up, when there's a strong consensus, then, then we have a lot of confidence. But it's just, it would be a mistake to ever trust that totally. Because sometimes it feels like there is like a direction of the mind or an inclination or something that's, you can distinguish and say, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's a different way of saying it or if that's mm-hmm. what that is. But. Yeah. yeah. But then how do you... Because it's very dangerous to get into the second-guessing state where you don't trust yourself and where you're really... That's just like, it's like this pitfall of anxiety and indecisiveness and inability to do anything because you're just always second-guessing yourself. Yeah, that's, that is true. Um, Actually, I'll just offer you something that might be helpful. This, uh, when we find ourselves in a state of indecision, very often it's because it really doesn't matter that much. Mm-hmm. You know, is that not true? Think about it. But when it's the decisions that are hardest to make are the ones that, in the long run, it really doesn't matter that much. You know, which shade of pink should I paint my bedroom? Well, <laughs> you can spend days worrying about that, hours looking at paint chips and everything else, and in the end, it really doesn't matter that, that much. <laughs> but, but there are other times where what we're experiencing, our indecision, is a result of a conflict between between two really strong impulses we have, and then and then it's important to see where they're coming from. Anger strongly justifies itself, and ill will and tendencies towards action that come out of that 
appear in our mind uh, you know, as it's the only possible thing I could do or say or the only reasonable thing or of course I feel this way. I mean, it just, it has that, the quality of self just, it's amazing to me when I look at my own mind and see the quality of self-justification that negative, aversive, ill-will kinds of thoughts carry with them. And so, if you find yourself in that, I'm going to go and tell them. I'm not going to take this anymore. Mm-hmm. And some other part of yourself is saying, look, you know, why create any more trouble than there already is? <laughs> and you're in that kind of thing, then you, you look at that and say, okay, what would the Buddha do? <laughs> what would Buddha do? And see if you can help. What's that? That'll straighten you right up. That should, it should at least help a lot. <laughs> Would the Buddha go and tell him off? <laughs> yeah. My very mundane question. Um, when I sit cross-legged, I, for sure my, knee, my legs are going to sleep. Am I better to just arrange myself somewhere where it's not going to go to sleep? Or should I work with the idea that somehow I'm going to get past that? No, you should. Uh, the first step should be to try to find a way to sit that you're not going to have uh, uh, have that problem, or at least that there's an absolute minimum problem. You, you may find that there's no way you can sit that something doesn't fall asleep. So, out of all of those, find the one that is going to be the least of a problem and the least distracting for you. You know, uh, some people have have. Uh, things going on in their body such that they're never going to find a way that they can sit comfortably. But always find the place that's going to work best and then use that. And it's it's not about working through things or getting over things. Except the things that <laughs> except the things that there's no other alternative for. There's nothing magic in sitting cross-legged on a cushion. No. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's uh, yes, it's Depending on the health of your body and, and the condition of, of your musculoskeletal system, sitting cross-legged is, has, has a lot of really definite advantages. Sitting in, if, you know, if you're capable of sitting in a full lotus, that's a really stable position to sit in. But most people can't, and most people would be a huge mistake to even try or to even think about it. You know, uh, half lotus—that's that's not as good as full lotus, but that's pretty darn good. Simply sitting cross-legged. That's most people can do that, and that's really good. Can't do that? Sit in a chair, uh, you know, or or even sitting cross-legged. Uh, there's so many different ways of sitting cross-legged. Some people put uh, supports under their knees. Some people use a, it's called a meditation band. It's just a strap that you put around your waist and it supports your knees. Uh, different kind, different shapes of cushions. These uh, uh, C-shaped cushions versus the round ones. I always suggest that you experiment and you find the most comfortable way that you can sit and, and work with that. If as time goes by that you can move to a more stable position, then, you know, go ahead. But don't worry about it. It doesn't have to happen. It could even go the other way. You could start off as a meditator that has no problem sitting cross-legged and then, you know, you develop sciatica and 
you just have to give it up and sit in a different way. That happens, that happens. Posture posture is a means to an end, and it's not an end in itself. It's just strictly a means to an end. all this week of, weeks of very getting into some more esoteric aspect of uh, Buddhist doctrine. It's kind of nice to be talking about practice again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I just uh, was thinking once again, I, I think I have this thought very, very frequently um, and, and perhaps we, we, we might all too and, and the 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 benefits um, of meditation for life and the kind of person that it helps us be in the world and the way that it helps us serve in the world um, the kind of human being our humanity our ability to be compassionate and so on would seem to me to be really what this is all about in addition to perhaps the 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 um, maybe the beginning to erode that birth rebirth cycle i don't tend to think of that aspect of it i just want to be a decent human being <laughs> and uh, and so meditation it seems to be the most marvelous way about that, so I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about that and some of the benefits. And so on and so forth. That's a good, good topic to address. But you know, we'd like to live the best life that we can, and the way to do that is to try to do better than we have done in whatever way we can, day by day, step by step. And that keeps us always going in the right direction. Uh, and I'll point out that meditation by itself won't necessarily make someone a better person. It, uh, the foundation for, uh, you know, in terms of becoming the best person that you can be, Becoming a Buddha. But we'll just assume for the moment that's the best person that you can be, okay? In terms of becoming a Buddha, meditation is one part. The other part is the uh, is what's called virtue. And the third part is called uh, wisdom or understanding. And they are all they all work together. But what they're all about is transforming uh, the kind of person we are by transforming the uh, mental formations, the karmic formations that make us up and make us be what we are. And it has the, uh, as we do that, it has two results. It allows us to be more comfortable and happier in ourselves in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And it also causes us to 
behave, to interact with others, to be in the world in a much more positive and wholesome way. And these two are, are absolutely inseparable from each other. To practice virtue requires that you be aware of uh, the non-virtuous activities of your mind and of your speech and uh, of your uh, bodily actions. And that is a big step. Most people, no matter what religious system that they choose to follow, it will involve some code of conduct. And the very first thing they'll discover is, is it's a whole lot easier to say you're going to follow this set of guidelines, precepts, commandments, than it is to really do it. And the first step is you have to be aware when you're not doing it. Um, this, this is one of the things that meditation contributes to. I mean, not the kind of meditation that you just get lost in a, in a blissful state of, of uh, concentration, but the kind of meditation where you're paying attention to your mind, you're getting used to paying attention to your mind, what's happening in your mind, the way your mind behaves, the way it reacts, this carries over and you, it allows you to be much more aware of your conduct. But there's a limit to the value and effectiveness of just following rules for the sake of following rules, keeping commandments or precepts for the sake of keeping them. Uh, because you can, you can always be on guard to stop yourself from lying and stealing. But it would be better to remove from your mind stream those impulses that cause you to want to lie and steal. It would be better yet if you could replace them in your mind stream with impulses that would make you be more interested in sharing generosity and protecting and preserving the uh, property of others rather than just resisting the impulse to steal. And to be in a place of wanting to uh, uh, manifest loving kindness through helping other people rather than worrying about taking the blame off of yourself or uh, being liked more or getting more of something because you can tell a good lie, you know, and, and, and not lie. So it's that inner transformation of the, the roots of our behavior. And this is where the, that's a, this is where meditation and mindful awareness uh, can really contribute to our ability to become a better person and make it possible. Because as you develop mindful awareness, you focus the mindful awareness on what's going on in your mind when you, uh, when the tendency arises to engage in unwholesome activities. And you don't even really need to do anything more than that because that mindful awareness will not only notice those specific qualities of those activities that make them unwholesome, it will notice the unwholesome effects that uh, uh, it has on you and on other people. And some, at some deep level in your psyche that's not immediately visible, some switches will be flipped and some changes will be made and you'll be to some degree less likely 
to continue doing the same thing endlessly. It also feeds back into the meditation. At a certain stage of meditation, a person who goes around telling lies, confabulating stories, uh, taking things from other people, doing things that are harmful in one way or another, making spiteful comments, all that stuff's in their mind. They know they did that. They're sitting there. Here I am trying to make my mind really still. Somewhere down below the surface where I can't see it, part of my mind is is uh, agitated due to the remorse for the things that I've done, due to the worry about if I'm going to get caught for this thing. You know, I mean, if you <clears throat> if there's something you don't declare on your income taxes for a few years in a row, there is no way that that's not going to keep chewing away at you all of the time. You know, if you purify the behavior in your life, you'll have a mind that is can truly enter into a state of peace and calm without having those kind of agitating influences present. You can't sit there and say, okay, effortless concentration is going to cause spontaneous joy to arise in me you know, with, with a psyche that's full of all of these negative things, of guilt and remorse and worry and, and uh, uh, desire for this and anger about that. And, you know, Those things all have to be eliminated. So they work together. The meditation helps you to make the changes uh, in your life and in your behavior. But if you don't make the changes uh, in your life, your meditation is going to go just so far and no further. So they have to go together. And of course, wisdom, understanding, supports both of these in very powerful ways. So that's, that's how these things work together. Now, I would like to see everyone that I talk to become a better, happier person. I would, you know, I'd be really pleased if that happens. And, and I just, these tools that I offer you will work really well to do that. And I think some of you have already discovered that or are using them. And, uh, um, the more people that do, the better the better off everyone is. And if it never comes beyond that, if you become if you become a generous, virtuous, patient person who is happier in uh, life and in your relationships and can perform your duties and responsibilities with less resistance and more satisfaction, you'll have won in a big way. And, of course, there will be all kinds of rewards that come back to you, too, because that kind of person in the world is rewarded. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it, it is a real victory. If that were the only thing, if that were the only thing at all that you uh, accomplished. The only problem with these kinds of transformations that we make in ourselves is that they are vulnerable to being lost. Um, of course, the greater the period of your life that you can spend having already succeeded in becoming a uh, generous, virtuous, uh, and patient person, then the more the more stable those tendencies are and, and 
the less easily they are to become overwhelmed. But in the process, you'll have noticed that in the beginning they weren't very stable and they could become overwhelmed by you know just the right circumstances. And as long as the roots exist for those kinds of unwholesome attitudes and behaviors, there's always the possibility that they will manifest again. So sort of the next step in becoming uh, a, a better person, uh, becoming the best person that you can be, is to begin uprooting completely, you know, the, the factors in your mind that can lead you astray and can, can lead you to start uh, going downhill again from, from what you've accomplished. And so that's what the uh, higher stages of the path of uh, training are about. And of course they come with, uh, they bring with them the uh, enormous satisfaction uh, that uh, comes from being a person who's not driven by uh, desire and ill will and who, uh, who has the genuine sources for uh, uh, generosity and loving kindness in, in their mind and in their heart. And this is what comes from seeing even a brief glimpse of the most profound truths is it helps you get beyond this separation of I and other that that gives rise to desire and ill will and that stands in the way of generosity and loving kindness. And so... When you cease to be, when you cease to be entrapped by that ignorance, and that's what it is—ignorance that makes us feel like we're separate and and, and bound to uh, bound to behave in the service of this separate self. <clears throat> this is the ignorance that's the problem, and when you can see the more profound truth beyond that, that liberates you from that, then. You, then you truly become this other kind of person in a way that uh, is, 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 not, is not going to be shaken, is not going to be uh, undermined by circumstances. So, but, you know, I guess it's like the whole meditation process. You start where you are mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you just, you just keep going in the right direction and uh, you can hopefully hold the goal of uh, becoming uh, an awakened being, becoming a Buddha in your own life, but without being attached to it in such a way that you're going to create frustration and disappointment for yourself. As long as, if, as, long as you continue to uh, move in that direction and become a better person, you're always, you're always winning. This, uh, I, I just, I, I see that in this world that we live in, you know, human life is such that there's suffering. There's no question about it. There's always going to be. It is ultimately unsatisfactory. It's imperfect. It's, and that's the way it is. But 
But it's so much it, it's so much more so than it needs to be. And when I look around in the world and I see that it's more so than it needs to be because of all of the things that people do to each other, you know, and I'm not just talking about war and exploitation and things like that. I mean, all the little things that that married couples do to each other during the day and the people that work together do to each other and people don't even know each other and traffic do to each other. I mean, we're always doing these things to each other that unnecessarily make things even worse than they have to be. And, and we do it out of desire and aversion. And it not only makes everybody else less happy, it makes us more unhappy ourselves, too. So the, the solution is there, you know, it's, it's not that far away. We just so I, I really don't see a world where it gets to here. The, the newest fad is to become generous, virtuous, and patient. And that's how we greet you. How are you doing today? You know? Oh, great. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming more generous, virtuous, and patient all the time. Oh, well, me too. Great. Well, let me, here, let me, let me take care of this for you. potential is there. The wonderful thing is that we're not the isolated, uh, lonely, struggling, uh, separate being that we think we are. And you have a universe to gain and nothing to lose except your sense of uh, futility, alienation and uh, uh, meaninglessness. <laughs> but if you're willing to pay the price, <laughs> anything else? Uh, it's starting to get late, but if anybody has any last Questions or comments? I appreciated you bringing that up, though, because often, you know, I, I, I want to see everybody achieve the ultimate goal, you know. Uh, and maybe too often I address that without saying that, you know, uh, it's just so much that you can do and, and that we can all do right now. It's not a, it's not some pie-in-the-sky thing in the future. Someday I'm going to be awakened and then everything will be changed. The change starts now and that's what's most important. So thank you for reminding me to speak about that. Okay, well, if nobody has anything else, then uh, and thank you all and bid you good night. And uh, until next time.